Jarvis Landry's a fraud. Oh, the worst. We already knew that Jarvis Landry was the most fraudulent thousand-yard receiver. He's done it twice. In 2015, it required 165 targets, and then in 2016, required 131 targets, and then in 2017, he couldn't even get to 1,000 yards with 160 targets! <laughs> but congratulations to Jarvis Landry for making a circus catch in practice while the cameras were rolling on hard knocks. I mean, congratulations, Jarvis. Way to go! You made that circus catch as if no receiver has ever made a one-handed catch in practice. Receivers make one-handed catches in every practice at the college level. Jarvis, this is the National Football League. You're expected to make one-handed catches when called upon. It just goes to show how little the producers at Hard Knocks had to work with. They had to celebrate this one one-handed catch by Jarvis Landry as if it's a big deal. And then after that catch, oh, Jarvis Landry had to let the other receivers know that he's the best receiver on the team. Yes. If you didn't know it, let me tell you about my work ethic. How I try harder than you. But before Jarvis Landry went into the meeting room with the wide receivers to demoralize them, he made sure to let the HBO Hard Knocks camera crew know, I'm not a vocal guy. I don't do a lot of talking. I lead by example. And then Jarvis Landry proceeds to make sure the cameras are on as he lambastes the other receivers in the wide receiver room for not practicing because they're injured. We talk about NFL coaches improperly pushing injured players and exacerbating injuries, turning a two-week absence into a six-week absence. And we saw in this Hard Knocks episode, Todd Haley playing the role of that guy, the coach who insist that there's just too much to do and not enough healthy players to do it. And these players need to be on the field at all costs. Well, it might turn a strain into a tear. Doesn't matter. I have plays and packages to install. Ruff, 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 ruff. And Jarvis Landry is not only complicit in this culture, he's part of the problem. I mean, congratulations, Jarvis. You've never been injured. Look at this game log. 16 games played, 16 games played, 16 games played, 16 games played. I sure hope Jarvis Landry continues to roll sevens and does not suffer a high ankle sprain or a broken collarbone or a broken hand like his former Browns teammate Corey Coleman. Corey Coleman has suffered multiple broken hands and strained hamstrings over the last couple seasons. It's the reason why, unlike Jarvis Landry, he's never played a full 16-game season. And for the Browns to trade Corey Coleman for a conditional 2020 seventh-round draft pick is just the heights of talent mismanagement and bad timing because hours later, they learned that Antonio Callaway was busted again with marijuana. Will Antonio Callaway play a game in the NFL? That's a question. If there were over-unders on number of games played in Las Vegas on Antonio Callaway for a career, it would be one or zero. That's how you can get on both sides of the public equally. Half the people would take zero, half would take one or more. I mean, this guy was an awful pick in the fourth round. The Browns could have had Equinemius St. Brown. They could have had Justin Watson. Players with real upside that care about the sport of football and are ready to be professionals. Not Antonio Callaway, who is the furthest thing from a professional athlete we've seen in some time. No, the furthest thing since Josh Gordon. To add Antonio Callaway to a roster with Josh Gordon in it is so absurd. 
and it stretches to the outer limits of plausibility. We talk about talent mismanagement. Name a team more grossly mismanaging their assets than the Cleveland Browns. Squandering a talent-rich roster bequeathed to John Dorsey by Sashi Brown. And it is a race to drain this franchise of its talent. And who better to do it than John Dorsey? I mean, the moment he was run out of Kansas City, that team veered and started ascending. John Dorsey was the problem in Kansas City, and his biggest problem, his biggest flaw, is an inability to manage the salary cap. John Dorsey's greatest flaw, his fatal flaw, has yet to be revealed in Cleveland. We're currently bearing witness to his talent management incompetency. We haven't even seen him mismanage the cap! Just wait until John Dorsey has to start paying players! You think his player valuation and talent management skills are bad now? Just wait until he's up against the cap! Until he paints himself into a corner! Then watch him release talented players like Corey Coleman. Because he didn't really trade Corey Coleman, did he? You can't call a conditional 2020 7th rounder a trade. He released Corey Coleman out into the wild. He let him go. He didn't gain anything of value in return for a former first round pick with a 90 plus percentile burst score, agility score, and college dominator and college yards per reception. One of the most explosive and exciting college wide receiver prospects we've seen in years who still has two years left on his rookie contract, was simply released on the same day Antonio Callaway was busted again. Why was Corey Coleman let go? Because he can't stay healthy. Another hamstring strain. You can't make the club in the tub. That's right. That's right. That's right. If you don't believe that, just ask Jarvis Landry. He'll tell you, right? I mean, Jarvis Landry has no problem walking in front of those cameras and shaming every receiver on the Browns, including Corey Coleman and Jeff Janis, who have both suffered through preseason injuries. But good old Jarvis Landry keeps rolling sevens and shaming those that are less fortunate than he is. If you're a coach or a general manager and you want to coerce injured players into playing hurt, what better way than to have one of their own deliver your message? Management in Cleveland have themselves a company man in Jarvis Landry. 990 yards on 160 targets. Great job, John Dorsey. <laughs> pay that man. Oh, pay him. But isn't this what we expected from John Dorsey? Isn't this what the deconstruction of the talent-rich roster built by Sashi Brown would look like? Wouldn't it look a lot like dumping Corey Coleman and overpaying Jarvis Landry? Totally confusing cause and effect of player injuries. I mean, the one person who sounded like a rational decision maker on the first episode of HBO's Hard Knocks with the Cleveland Browns was shockingly Hugh Jackson. Hugh Jackson impressed me. Only one player's stock was up after Hard Knocks, episode one. It is Hugh Jackson. Every other individual featured was a disappointment. <laughs> Just in case the podfather thought that being a Cleveland Browns fan would be easy. Oh, oh, oh I give you Hard Knocks. I wonder if any wide receivers in Philadelphia are shaming Alshon Jeffrey for his offseason shoulder surgery. Why isn't Alshon Jeffrey playing every practice snap? Why is he wasting our time rehabilitating his torn labrum that he suffered during the season and played through? 
incidentally. So in the case of Alshon Jeffrey, no, I'm not worried about a torn labrum. I have concerns about all preseason injuries, but I'm not worried about it. It is the worst preface to a question on social media. The, do you have any concerns about... Any concerns about Alshon Jeffrey being on the PUP, coming off rotator cuff surgery? Aren't you concerned about this? Any concerns? Whatever concerns I have are built into our projections on the draft kit. Fantasy-draftkit.com. Fantasy-draftkit.com. Our cheat sheet for every league format has a projection. And all our concerns are embedded within those projections. And in case you're wondering... I'm aware of all the injuries that all the players suffer during the offseason. We track all injuries on playerprofiler.com. Just scroll down and you can see the medical history report. I review each injury reported on each player before we post it. So, of course, I'm aware of these injuries. You're not teaching me anything. You're not shining a light into the darkness by tweeting me the mundane details of Alshon Jeffrey's shoulder surgery. I don't care about the article that at eTurnerFF underscore PT, that's a real Twitter handle, wrote for Fantasy Pros. Delving into the minutia on these injuries, it's never a good idea to draft a fantasy football team as if you're a doctor. I'm not a doctor, but I am adept at finding buying opportunities. And when a player was playing hurt the previous season, which negatively impacted their efficiency, and then gets the injury fixed in the offseason, that presents a buying opportunity. It's not a reason to avoid that player. Why would you avoid the player? He got the shoulder problem fixed. And if anything, it provides a rationalization for... 2017's inefficiency. Last year's injuries are buying opportunities. Yes, there is concern there, but not any more concern with this shoulder injury than any other shoulder injury because I'm not a doctor, Ethan, and neither are you. So you're wasting your time writing about it for Fantasy Pros, and you're wasting both our times tweeting me a link to your article, which I'm never going to click on, ever. Because if you overreact to one player's shoulder injury more than another's because that player has been tagged with the arbitrary injury-prone label, you're doing it wrong. You're bypassing a buying opportunity because you're concerned. Oh, any concerns? Any concerns? Yeah, I'm always concerned about everything. Just assume that I'm aware of all the external forces impacting these players and acting accordingly. You can assume that of me. I'm the fucking podfather. Of course I know about Alshon Jeffrey's shoulder injury. You can move on and try to go inform literally anyone else to try to make yourself feel smart. It's lost on me. All previous year injuries are factored into the projections on our world-famous, in quotes, draft kit, fantasy-draftkit.com. So shuffle off. And you all should be shuffling over to Apex Fantasy Football Leagues. Go to Jarvis Landry's page on playerprofiler.com and you'll see on the right side, under the Spark X score, play Jarvis Landry on Apex Fantasy Leagues. Click that and it will take you to apexfantasyleagues.com. And there you will click the sign up button and you can join a league that starts three wide receivers with multiple flex positions where you play in two matchups per week. 
where ad drops are determined by a blind bidding system, not an arbitrary waiver wire order. Just go to any player page and click play this player on Apex. If you want to experience the best seasonal league platform within season moves. And maybe you're thinking, well, you know, eh, I don't really have time to make waiver claims. I don't have time nor the inclination to set my lineup every week. Well, that's fine. Roto Underworld always has you covered, man. Because real-time fantasy sports not only offers best ball leagues, they offer best ball tournaments. That's my favorite seasonal league contest to enter. The DraftMaster Best Ball Tournament. And check them out at rtsports.com forward slash underworld. And the entry fees go down to as little as $20. Or you can join leagues where you can win thousands. Real stakes at all skill levels. On a site that you can trust. Real-time fantasy sports. And if you don't see a particular league configuration drafting at a time slot that works for you, just create one that does. And to see tonight's draft times, go to rtsports.com forward slash underworld. Maybe you'll find yourself in a draft room with a fantasy expert. I know I'll be playing on real-time fantasy sports this summer, and perhaps my guest will as well. My guest today is one of the best in the business, a friend of the underworld, Graham Barfield. Longtime listeners know that Graham Barfield and I have had our differences, but we've also been aligned a lot more often than we've been apart. And Graham Barfield has information you need to win your fantasy draft. Be sure to follow him at Graham Barfield on Twitter. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio Program, the guy you know. Oh, you know him, Graham Barfield. He's a senior analyst over at Fantasy Guru. Graham Barfield, talk to me. How's it going, man? It's fun to be. Uh, it's fun to be back with you once more. Uh, we we did the show like super late December, I want to say, in 2016. I've, I went on a show and we're both exhausted. I, I felt like uh, we needed to do like an off-season pod. We're both refreshed, looking forward to a season, and uh, it's, I'm happy to be back on the show, man. August show is big. That's big. The best of the best come on the show in August. If you do a show in August on Roto Underworld Radio, you know your stuff. I don't know about I don't know about that for me. I don't know about that for me. You're an A-lister, Graham. You are. <laughs> Appreciate it, man. You got to deal with it. Just throw those sunglasses on and deal with it. And the Bills are dealing with a problem at quarterback. They just have to deal with it. Whoever they roll out at quarterback, whoever's under center, they got to deal with it. And they're trying to deal with it by improving their wide receiver core. And I think it's admirable. I think it's admirable, the self-scouting, to look at the talent they have at wide receiver and go, this isn't good enough to win football games in the NFL. So they went out and traded for Corey Coleman in exchange for a conditional seventh rounder. A conditional, not just a seventh rounder, Graham. Hold up! A conditional seventh rounder. Did the Bills steal Corey Coleman from the Browns? A 2020 a conditional rounder, right? Like, are you kidding? I mean, it's not even. They couldn't even do a 2019 seventh, seventh round pick. I mean, I, I don't get the move for the Browns. Um, mm-hmm. Just first and foremost, I mean, Josh Gordon is a question mark. I know we're all uh, really pulling for him to to battle and and defeat his off field demons, and I really hope he comes back because when he is on the field, he's just transcendent. But 
the Browns' depth is really poor at best. I realize they also just spent big money on Jarvis Landry, but outside of that, I mean, they're looking at Rashard Higgins, you know, Jeff Janis. I mean, I know that's your boy, Jeff Janis, but I mean, they're they're yeah, easy. Their depth. I'm sorry. Easy. I'm sorry, but I know their their depth is just very poor. So I didn't understand the move and the upside for it um, for the Browns. I think it was more or less just John Dorsey saying we're getting rid of Sashi's guys and kind of an ego thing. But yeah, I mean. I'm kind of excited for Corey Coleman in Buffalo. I know it's a low probability bet anytime a, a receiver gets traded in August to a new team. You know, right before the season starts, it's, you know, kind of hurts them. We're obviously not expecting Josh Allen, AJ McCarron to be a very good quarterback tandem early on. But what happened last year was Sammy Watkins. Exactly. And never develop rapport with Jared Goff because how could he? He arrived at the end of preseason. Yeah, there's no chance. And of course, he's not going to develop close rapport with Jared Goff or even have a full working knowledge of the offense until the season is underway. So it's an impossible situation that Corey Coleman has been put in, but at least it's better than being. Being the third banana on the Browns. I mean, at least now he has an opportunity to claim the number one wide receiver chair in Buffalo and improve his brand equity as a professional in the National Football League. Mm. Improve his value moving forward. Right. I mean, I, I kind of think he's already the most talented um, for sure in terms of his athleticism. But I mean, last year going back. To, to last year and the whole Kaiser Browns experiment. I mean, Corey Coleman just had no chance. He had a couple, another fluke injury. Um, 54% of his targets were, were deemed on target by PFF. It was the eighth worst rate. Josh Gordon was last in catchable target rate. Unfortunately, I don't think we can expect too big of an improvement with Josh Allen, but uh, Col- the, the, the Bills depth chart uh, with Kelvin Benjamin dealing with knee issues and his own inefficiency, Zay Jones coming off one of the worst rookie seasons ever. Um, yeah, I kind of think Corey Coleman might have that inside track to, to be my favorite Bills receiver to draft. But again, I'm not really hammering any Bills in fantasy this year, Matt. Go read the scouting report on Deshaun Kaiser, and it reads strikingly similar to the Josh Allen scouting report. A well-built, big-armed quarterback who has problems with decision-making and errant passes. <laughs> who does that sound like? I mean, I've never heard that before. Oh, oh. Deshaun Kaiser 2.0 in Buffalo. Ironically, too, Allen probably should have went in the Deshaun Kaiser reign of the, range of the draft. Uh, yeah. Kaiser was Kaiser fell to this late second, you know, second round. That's where that guy should be drafted. You're exactly right. Yeah, that's where he should have gone, ironically. But yeah, it's it's unfortunate for Corey Coleman. Think about it for him, for his perspective, right? He's a first-round pick, has a couple fluke injuries. I think he hurt his wrist, hand, in training camp two years ago in his rookie year, just kind of, kind of in a fluke way. And I think he landed on it wrong in practice and kind of just shot and harpooned his uh, his season. He's got a, he's had a couple of hammy problems. It's just been a, a really brutal start for the for uh, for Coleman's career. He goes from an ascending franchise to a descending franchise, and that's always demoralizing. The silver lining is that he can rebuild his perceived value around the league with targets. I mean, that's all you really want. That's the number one most coveted asset that a wide receiver can earn is the target. 
It's just what we look for in fantasy football. We're trying to covet the targets. Well, that's what wide receivers need in order to demonstrate their value. At the end of the day, the nameless, faceless, cliche NFL general manager is more likely to chase the counting stats than he is the efficiency metrics. You would agree? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for for Coleman's perspective, though, like it just kind of seems like to me that the Dorsey and the Browns just out of nowhere just decided to give up. I mean, like, unless you're really confident that Gordon is going to come back and, and be, um, you know, 80% of the player we all kind of expect him to be, or they're going to sign Des Bryant, which seems unlikely now. I, I just, I, I don't get it from the Browns perspective. I get it. John Dorsey is showing us with every passing day that he's John Dorsey. There were a handful of clever moves made by the Cleveland Browns since John Dorsey arrived. So there were questions. Is this a new John Dorsey? But no, 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 We're seeing the swaggering penis of the old school football guy peeing on the previous general manager's players. Right, That's what these cavemen do. He is laying claim to his territory. This is my roster. These are my players. Ruff, 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 ruff. Corey Coleman will send you to Buffalo for nothing. It's all about building a roster incrementally, just incrementally increasing the value of the roster. And it's best illustrated in those final 10 players on the roster, player 44 through 53. That's where the Patriots win. Their player 44 through 53 is better than most other rosters around the league. That's why when they cut players, those players are immediately added by other franchises. When you diminish the talent level of the back of your roster, you incrementally get worse instead of incrementally improving over time. And this is a bad sign for Browns fans that John Dorsey is positioning himself to slowly squander the talent-rich franchise that Sashi Brown built. Now, who is going to be the third receiver? Is it going to be Antonio Callaway? Because that's who fantasy gamers are now enamored by. All the athleticism. Oh, unlock Antonio Callaway. Or or is it more likely to be Rashard Higgins? Look, I mean, I think the, the Callaway hype is just because John Dorsey took Tyreek Hill and, and Callaway has a, a very uh, checkered past um, and is obviously, uh, do, he does have a decent athletic profile. But I, I don't know what to do here, I'll be honest with you. I mean, Rashard Higgins was a pure slot receiver last year. Almost 100% of his roots came from the slot. We're expecting Jarvis Landry uh, to be the, the Cleveland Browns interior receiver this year with Gordon on the outside. I, I guess it's going to be Callaway. Uh I really don't. That's that's why I'm kind of just so perplexed. I mean, it would just made perfect sense. You you take uh, Corey Coleman, who's had a lot of you know unlucky um, and bad uh, you know bad variants in his career, and then you take all that pressure off of him in Cleveland. He's now the third, the third or even fourth fiddle behind uh, David Njoku, and just he would have been the perfect stretch flanker in that offense in three receiver sets. He's the perfect third receiver in eleven personnel for that perfect. offense. So. I, I don't get it, but I guess it's going to be Callaway. I guess they feel that great about him. I think it's going to be Higgins. I think they're going to ask Jarvis Landry to run more intermediate routes out of the flanker position, and they're going to try to work Higgins and Landry off of one another inside. I think that will ultimately be how the roles shake out that 
Rashard Higgins will command a higher snap share than Antonio Callaway. That's if Josh Gordon plays. Now, if Josh mm-hmm. Gordon doesn't play, then I think Antonio Callaway will simply take over Josh Gordon's role on the outside. Then it's a completely different story. In that scenario, Antonio Callaway will outsnap Rashad Higgins. But I hope it doesn't come to that. Please, let's just not think about that particular scenario because then the Browns are going to give Jarvis Landry 200 targets. And I do not want to see another 1,001-yard season on 175 targets for Jarvis Landry. That would not make me happy. No! Don't do that! What? It, it, it's definitely in the range of outcomes now, unfortunately. I mean, I, I was completely off Jarvis Landry in the 6th, 7th round. I mean, I just there's so many receivers going in that range that I like better. But now the Browns have 172 available targets after losing Corey Coleman. That's the 11th most in the NFL. Uh, Prior to Coleman's departure, they have the 10th fewest available targets, Matt. So, I mean, it it does open up a nice little buoy of of targets for for Landry, and especially if they kind of move him on the outside, because I do agree with you. I think they paid him to be their kind of featured player, and I think they're going to try to do some more – play him on the boundary a little more than he's used to. He was used to in Miami. With that said, though, I I, kind of now I'm kind of feeling like maybe the maybe Landry was the buy the whole time, you know, the sixth, seventh round. Yes, he was. He was. He absolutely was, because now we're seeing a consolidation of the target distribution. We always like to see that where you go from three receivers to two. But on the other hand, we also have Duke Johnson and David Njoku ready to be commanding targets as well. David Njoku is ready to be unlocked. So that's exciting, and it may not be the extreme target consolidation that it appears Mm -hmm. going down to just Gordon and Landry. They may still spread it around a lot, getting Duke Johnson involved, getting David Njoku involved. But with the law of the conservation of targets, when a receiver who would play in three receiver sets exits the roster, all the other pass catchers, their forecast rises incrementally with that increase in projected target share. The opposite is true in Buffalo. So in Buffalo, Zay Jones is the big loser from this deal, is he not? (laughs) I mean... Was Zay Jones ever a winner? I mean, that's my that's my question. I mean, he could have. He was projected to be a starter. I mean, he, stranger things have happened. We've lived through the, the fall and rise of Devontae Adams. That's true. I, you know, I just Zay Jones's rookie season was about as bad as you could get. Uh, it was worse than Devontae Adams' rookie season. It was worse than Nelson Aguilar's rookie season. That's how bad the Zay Jones rookie season was. Right. We've seen Devontae Adams and, and Nelson Aguilar, you know, obviously bounce back from from poor rookie seasons, but Zay Jones's was something spectacular and something special. I mean, in terms of his just, you know, per route efficiency, like Zay Jones was only worse than Rashard Higgins in, in yards gained per route run last year. It's it, 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 the whole the whole Zay Jones thing never started. So I, I think right now, Matt, my attack plan is, is pretty simple. I like Chuck Clay in the 12th, 13th round uh, as kind of like a tight end two option. And I'm I'm interested in Corey Coleman in like the 16th, 17th round, but I'm going to continue to avoid Kelvin Benjamin and continue to avoid uh, Zay Jones. Yeah, Kelvin Benjamin is not as attractive anymore either. 
because of the law of the conservation of targets on the other end of the spectrum, the law of the conservation of targets in Buffalo negatively impacts all those receivers, including Kelvin Benjamin, including Jeremy Curley, including Charles Clay. Their opportunities are at least moderately diminished with the addition of Corey Coleman. And I know we don't want to talk about Rashard Higgins in the slot, just like we don't want to talk about Jeremy Curley in the slot. But what this does is bounce Zay Jones from the number two chair to the number four chair because I think Jeremy Curley is locked into a slot role in Buffalo and Zay Jones just needs to eat it. You think it's that bad? You think that you think they'll put uh they'll they'll just throw Curley in the slot and just kind of let Zay Jones ride the bench? I don't I don't know if I see that happen. I think that they're committed to Jeremy Curley in the slot. You know how these NFL teams operate. They get enamored with certain veterans in certain roles and no change to the talent configuration of the roster is going to get them out of their game plan, Graham. It's crazy. It's crazy. What, wouldn't you think that, Corey, I mean, Corey, in a perfect world, Corey Coleman should be the one moving all over the field and playing some in the slot and 11 personnel, but. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Corey Coleman is the perfect stretch flanker in that role where you have Kelvin Benjamin off on an island on the left-hand side at X. Then you have Corey Coleman and whether it's Zay Jones or Jeremy Curley in the slot, helping one another get open, playing off one another, the rub routes, the crossing routes on the right-hand side. And Corey Coleman is the ideal wide receiver to run those double moves, to run those post-corner routes that's where you want Corey Coleman operating. He's not equipped to win on an island. That's not his game. I think we've learned that. He was just traded for a conditional 2020 seventh rounder. But he can be put in a position to succeed. Look at his talent profile on playerprofiler.com. 90th percentile burst and 90th percentile agility and a 90th percentile college dominator rating. Very, 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 very few wide receivers check all those boxes that Corey Coleman does, and very few wide receivers have been as unlucky as Corey Coleman early in their career. The broken hands are random accidents. The hamstrings are not. The hamstring is an indication that he's not taking care of his body as well as he could in the offseason. I don't think anyone thinks of Corey Coleman as this diligent hard worker in the offseason but he's worth a hell of a lot more than a mm. conditional 2027th rounder now in new england we have another ambiguous receiving core they just added eric decker they cut malcolm mitchell and they ir'd jordan matthews just in the last week in new england who is the next man up to replace Julian Edelman and Jordan Matthews across from Chris Hogan early in the season. Who's going to be the guy? Unfortunately for Matthews, it's he's not going to play anytime soon for the Patriots. Um, he'll have to either get an injury settlement or basically be IR'd by week one. Um, he then will be able to return by week eight or nine. So Jordan Matthews is out of the picture. Um, I think we know by now what Kenny Britt is. I guess you just kind of have to shoehorn Jordan Matthews projection, projection, those 35 catches, 400 yards, maybe a touchdown or two for Eric Decker. But Decker just only got $75,000 in terms of guaranteed money. He's no guarantee to make the roster either. 
Matt, the easiest play here is just to draft Chris Hogan in the fifth round. Um, his ADP is still too low. Um, I, I have been absolutely hammering him in, in, in my best ball in, in redraft leagues. Um, I don't think people are really truly understanding how great of a player Hogan actually is relative to the Patriots. He can play inside. He can play outside. And in terms of adjusted yards per attempt, only Rob Gronkowski has been more efficient with Tom Brady than Chris Hogan in Brady's entire career. Um, I think Chris Hogan's just a slam dunk fifth, sixth round pick. I, I've taken him as early as the fifth round and would even consider him in the back end of the fourth. Well, you just had the opportunity to draft him in the back of the fourth round in the Apex Experts League. I'm regretting it now. You chose Marvin Jones. Chris Hogan was selected a pick later at 411. Do you regret not drafting Chris Hogan? Because my guess is you thought you could get Chris Hogan at 503. And so game theory took over. Do you regret that pick? It was a game third pick. So I took Marvin Jones um, thinking that Broad, Mike Broad, who's picking second in this league particularly, we're coming back on the snake. Broad went uh, receiver heavy, three receivers to start. Uh, I went three running backs to start. So I'm thinking, yeah, he's going to take a running back in the fourth round. But no, it was Chris Hogan. And I thought I could sneak in Chris Hogan in the fifth. I do. I do regret that because in terms of my overall rankings, I have Hogan over Jones. But I wanted both because I started running back heavy and thought that gave me the best opportunity to get both. But anyway. Evan was going to draft Hogan regardless. Yeah, I think so, too. And I think about it, yeah. It's okay, man. It's okay. Sometimes I draft based on my takes. Sometimes I draft based on our extreme cheat sheet in our world-famous draft kit. I go back and forth. In the case of Chris Hogan, I draft him very aggressively because I'm also loyal to my takes. Although you should check out the draft kit, fantasy-draftkit.com. Most of my picks come straight off the cheat sheet in the draft kit, like my fourth round pick, Alshon Jeffrey. Alshon Jeffrey is teed up for a monster season in Philadelphia. They have a consolidated target distribution in that the third receiver is an ancient field stretcher. Now, Mike Wallace is an ancient, but a 33-year-old field stretcher? We're not thinking Mike Wallace is going to command a significant target share, though he will have some splash weeks and be valuable in best ball leagues. Zach Ertz is there. Zach Ertz is one of the highest volume pass catching tight ends, and they don't have a satellite back that's going to command significant targets. Darren Sproles is there. Darren Sproles is the oldest satellite back in the league. Mike Wallace is the oldest field stretcher in the league. Alshon Jeffrey is still clinging to the last year of his prime, tethered to Carson Wentz in as the alpha dog in one of the league's most prolific offenses. So... For me, there was a significant tear break between Alshon Jeffrey and the next group of receivers after the 403 in the Apex draft. Do you agree? I, I was hoping we disagree on the show, Matt, and we, we finally got to a point where I, I can't I can't endorse the Alshon pick. You're not an Alshon guy. I'm not an Alshon guy at all. Um, it, it basically just comes down to I think Nelson Aguilar is the better value. Um, he's eighth, not, you know, he goes in eighth, ninth round of, of fantasy drafts, and and last year Matt uh, Aguilar saw 25 fewer targets than Alshon, but he finishes the receiver 30, whereas Jeffrey was just the receiver 28. I mean, only like a tenth of a fantasy point per game separated the two. Um, and if you look back at the whole season, including the playoffs, Aguilar had 20 red zone targets to Jeffrey's 21. Uh, Jeffrey only had one more target inside of the 10-yard line um, as they got closer to the goal line, too. The big difference, obviously, is Jeffrey has a significantly higher target share and um, share of the Eagles' air yards, so that gives him the higher ceiling on a weekly basis. 
But just in terms of overall draft cost, you can get, you know, a, a receiver that has a um, maybe low end receiver two in his range of outcomes in Nelson Aguilar um, in the eighth, ninth round. And you can still get a piece of the Eagles offense and Carson Wentz at that draft cost. I just prefer that. I prefer Ertz, too, because he has, you know, he's just a stud. I mean, he has 70 receptions and 800 yards in three straight seasons. He his production didn't wane whatsoever with Nick Foles in there um, the past um, uh, over the end of the last year. So for me, I'm just more or less interested in Ertz in the early fourth round and, and targeting Aguilar pretty heavily in the eighth and ninth round and just kind of skipping over Alshon. I know it could bite me because Jeffrey has legitimate touch. Like he could legitimately lead the league in touchdowns this year. That's certainly within us. He has wide receiver one upside for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. He yeah. does. He absolutely does. But, but I just, I, I like the, the pieces at cost with the Eagles a little bit better. Like, in, with Ertz drafting, drafting Ertz in the fourth and Aguilar in the eighth and ninth. Something clicked for Alshon Jeffrey in the second half, and I know that was not with Carson Wentz, so that's my concern. My concern is that Alshon Jeffrey has better rapport with Nick Foles than he does with Carson Wentz. I'm not sure why Carson Wentz wasn't targeting Alshon Jeffrey more in the first half, but in the second half, as soon as November rolled around, Alshon Jeffrey had three games with double-digit targets, then took the last two weeks off. So his counting stats are deceiving because he really didn't play in the final two weeks of the season. It's true. With the Eagles having wrapped a playoff berth. And then in the playoffs, three touchdowns, including two touchdowns in that blowout win against Minnesota and a clutch 34-yard touchdown in the back of the end zone against the New England Patriots. I'm letting some vividness bias Mm -hmm. affect my evaluation of Alshon Jeffrey, but also it's the air yards too. It's the target share and the air yards and the knowledge that he has one more year of his prime left. Once he turns 30, Alshon Jeffrey's not going to age well, but I at least want to enjoy the Alshon Jeffrey while he's 28 because I know it's not going to last. I'm like, oh, let me get some Alshon Jeffrey before it's over. That That's what I wanted to bring up, right? Like three years ago, he averaged nearly 90 yards per game. And last year, he averaged 49 yards per game. And I realized that obviously his opportunity in Chicago three years ago was a little bit higher. He had a higher target share and higher share of the Bears air yards. But I mean, his profile was pretty damn good last year and he only averaged 49 yards per game. And I, I get it though. His playoff stretch was fantastic and he was a big part of the Eagles playoff run. But Jeffrey is just, I mean, he, I, I'm not big into taking touchdown dependent receivers in the fourth round. I mean, last year, 28% of Jeffrey's fantasy points came uh, via touchdowns. That was by far the highest uh, rate of his career and the fifth highest rate among receivers. I just, I guess for me, I get it if he's your third receiver and you just really want to have some big, big TD upside on your team. But for me, I like, you know, I think there's just receivers with better floors at cost. Yeah, I think he's a value because the catch rate was so low. His efficiency was abysmal in 2017. I'm not sure exactly why, but I do know that things change in the second half. And so that's part of why I'm more encouraged than normal. In general, we fade previous year efficiency and we buy the inefficient players from last year, assuming they're going to command similar opportunities in 2018. Efficiency is not as sticky as opportunity, so it creates a buying opportunity and then it's easier to justify when you see the efficiency improve as last season went on. So those are my justifications for Alshon Jeffrey. And when we run the numbers and the projections through our system, Peter Howard thinks that Alshon Jeffrey is a top 20 receiver, and I trust him. And so that was a pick where I closed my eyes 
and I went with the draft kit. Now, what about Eric Decker versus Kenny Britt? If you had to pick, you're going to pick Eric Decker. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, I'm going to pick Decker just because, I mean, we kind of know what Britt is. And I mean, look, I mean, Kenny Britt's had a couple of flashes in his career at this point. But I think if we know the Patriots, we know that they're going to target their interior receiver, whomever it is, heavily. Um, either if they rotate Hogan in there who ran, I mean, Hogan ran 50% of his roots from the slot last year. I just, I just have a better, um, I guess a firmer grip understanding what I think Decker's role will be outside of, you know, Britt, maybe just playing some, you know, boundary snaps and, and kind of being a rotational player. Here's our thought process in generating the projections for the draft kit in New England. What do you think is more likely that Chris Hogan moves to the slot and Kenny Britt becomes the new X receiver or that Eric Decker simply replaces Julian Edelman and Jordan Matthews one for one in the slot in terms of Occam's razor, which is more likely, which has less moving parts. If you're creating a theory, which has less moving parts, Eric Decker manning the slot full time has far fewer moving pieces and I believe is more likely, which is why we one for one replaced the Jordan Matthews production with Eric Decker's. And I think that makes sense. I, to- I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, I-, I think, like I said, if we know anything about the Patriots, they love to rotate their guys for sure. And Hogan is going to get some slot work. But I-, I think just like you said, applying Occam's razor, I think Decker's the, the-, the guy you want in the 17th, 18th round of, of best ball drafts. And I'm just... It just, I've never been in on Kitty Britt, and I'm sure I'm surely not going to be in on it now. Are you familiar with one Riley McCarron? This is a name that people are starting <laughs> to get to know, Graham. Yeah, he was the Braxton Berrios before Braxton Berrios. Yes, that's right. Little slot dude. Um, I remember, I think maybe, I want to say Houston picked him. Houston picked him up, and then he went to New England. Because what we talked about before, when New England cuts players to get to 53... Everyone else wants them. <laughs> the first player they try to put on the taxi squad always gets poached. Yeah. And that was Austin Carr. So Austin Carr was Riley McCarron before Riley McCarron was Braxton Berrios. So the Patriots decided, okay, Austin Carr's gone. Let's poach Riley McCarron from Houston. That's the musical chairs of the white wide receivers moving around the league. <laughs> And big surprise, who kicks off the process? The cascade effect always starts. It emanates in New England. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. You can pretty much set set your watch to it. Riley McCarron, Patriots, white wide receiver cascading waterfall. It's an interesting theoretical long name for a show if we ever wanted to go there, which we won't. What about Tom Brady? At what point does this loss of weaponry affect Tom Brady? To me, it doesn't. I mean, Brady really only falters when Gronk is out of the lineup. I mean, if you just go back and look at Brady's career with and without Rob Gronkowski, it is stark. Um, Brady averages 25 points per game when Gronk plays versus 21.6 without Gronk over his entire career. So dating back to 2010 and over that span too, Brady averages eight yards per attempt. I mean, eight yards per attempt dating back to 2010 when Gronk plays versus just 6.8 when Gronk is out of the lineup. So to me, as long as Gronk is healthy, as, wrong, as long as, as Gronk doesn't want to start his movie career, as long as Gronk uh, stays on the field, we, we have to hammer and be very, very happy with Tom Brady in the eighth, ninth round when he slips. Um, Gronk is legitimately like one of the only league's difference makers as a pass catcher. It's very, very hard for pass catchers to have that big of an impact on their team. 
But Rob Gronkowski, Randy Moss, um, I think you could maybe even put Antonio Brown in this span, even though we don't have the data for it. He hasn't missed that many games. That being said, I mean, Gronk is just such a massive di- difference maker. And I'm only really afraid of Tom Brady and fantasy if if Gronkowski misses significant time. Please, Rob Gronkowski, do not get injured. We need you. You are a critical piece. The critical keystone component of one of the NFL's signature prolific offenses. You're not allowed to get injured. And I hate drafting injured players. Of the following injured players, do any interest you at this time at their current ADPs? Doug Baldwin, Rashard Matthews, Alan Hearns, Chris Thompson, Zach Ertz. Yeah, Ertz is back in practice. Um, they never really specified what the problem was with Ertz, but he was back in practice as of um, Monday morning, August 6th. I, I think it's kind of a small deal. The, the one that I'm crying in the shower about is Doug Baldwin. He's no longer just an auto pick in the third round this year. I mean, everything's set up perfectly for Baldwin to have even an outside shot to lead the league in receiving. But I just don't trust Pete Carroll's lip service whatsoever. Whatever Pete, whatever, whenever Pete Carroll starts his injury optimism rants, which is basically any time a Seahawks player gets gets injured, I just start tuning it out. As much as I love how this year sets up for Doug Baldwin, um, you know he has three straight years with 75 receptions and 900 yards. Jimmy Graham's gone, leaving nearly 40% of uh, the Seahawks' target share inside the 10-yard line open. Um, as much as I want to love Doug Baldwin again in the third round, I just can't do it. So Baldwin is the one for me that I'm kind of – I have no idea where to value him. Um, where where are you taking Baldwin at this point? I don't draft injured players. I'm not drafting Alan Hearns. I'm not drafting Zach Ertz. I'm not drafting Chris Thompson. I'm not drafting Rashard Matthews. I'm especially no longer drafting Alan Hearns. Alan Hearns has been out with a groin injury, and this isn't the first time that Alan Hearns has suffered a groin injury and he's losing snaps to Cole Beasley, even in one receiver sets. Who's on the field in one receiver sets? It's Cole Beasley. Two receiver sets, Cole Beasley. Three receiver sets, it's sometimes Michael Gallup, sometimes Tavon Austin, but always, 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 always with Cole Beasley. So sometimes when a receiver gets injured, it's a buying opportunity. Doug Baldwin's injury creates opportunity to draft a Jerron Brown and have him make an impact in week one for Taewon Taylor to make an impact in week one. And I know it's crazy and I know you're not going to like this. Dallas Goddard catches a touchdown in week one. It could happen. It's a minor injury for Zach Ertz, but I don't, I, I don't know, man. I got a bad feeling. I I guess what I would say, I'm not one to to buy into injury optimism either. And as much as it pains me to fade. No. Yeah, that's the point. The point is Pete Carroll would be number one in whatever car dealership he was working in. (laughs) Pete Pete Carroll could sell like a a broken down 1989 Toyota Camry and and sell it above sticker price for for like more than $1,000. He could do it. Oh, yeah. But I just don't buy into it. Um, I, I guess I will say about Richard Matthews and Alan Hearns. I mean, they're cheap as it is. You know that that and and Chris Thompson too. I mean, Chris Thompson especially that injury. You know, his broken leg is is kind of already it's already priced in at cost. Whereas not for Tuck Baldwin yet. Um, so the only yeah, that's the only thing. I guess going back to Alan Hearns, Matt is like, what in the world is Dallas doing? If Alan Hearns is hurt, all the more reason to go out and offer a conditional 2019 pick for Corey Coleman. We know that Dallas has an affinity for Baylor receivers. They don't care about off-the-field issues. Why not acquire Corey Coleman? What are you doing? Are you even going to the office? Are you even there, Stephen Jones, Jerry Jones? I mean, what are they doing? 
I don't think they're taking this seriously. I, I, I honestly, you would think that as much as they appear in front of cameras, that the Joneses must take the management of the Dallas Cowboys incredibly seriously, but their actions reveal that they're not, that this is just a hobby for them. It's mind boggling to me. I mean, they've got Dak on basically a nothing deal, right? I mean, Dak was a, you know, Pat was drafted past the fourth, fifth round um, in the NFL draft. He's on an extremely cheap rookie deal. And it's a big part of the reason the Seahawks had so much success early, um, you know, three, four years ago is because Russell Wilson was on that rookie deal and it allowed them so much flexibility to have a stud quarterback and go out and spend and, and, and insulate that quarterback and build the defense, whatever the case may be, whatever the Cowboys wanted to do. And they've just bungled it. Um, I mean, Alan Hearns is still dealing with a groin problem. He had a um, he had a sports hernia uh, surgery in 2016. It caused him to miss, I think, four or five games in 2016 because he had a groin injury. And obviously that's popped back up here in training camp there. I guess they're going to go into the season with Terrence Williams and Michael Gallup as their main boundary receivers and just hope maybe Hearns can can play all over the field um, by week one. We don't know what they're going to do at tight end. Ezekiel Elliott, for whatever reason, the first two years has not been as involved in the passing game as he should be, at least on a target per route run basis. It's just a mess, man. It's it's a real mess in Dallas. This is the time when you have a productive and efficient young quarterback on a rookie deal. This is the time to strike. The championship windows for NFL franchises are fleeting, and Dak on a rookie deal is the best opportunity you're going to get to win a Super Bowl. So, cliche alert! Cliche alert! Cliche alert! Cliche alert! Cliche alert! To win a Super Bowl, so you need to push your chips into the middle of the table like the LA Rams. The LA Rams know the clock is ticking on Jared Goff and his contract. So what are they doing? They're putting all their chips in the middle of the table. They're overpaying Brandon Cooks and Adamakan Sue and Aqib Talib because they know it doesn't matter. They're just going to cut these players in a couple of years anyway once they have to go pay Jared Goff and the run is over. But in the meantime, take your shot at winning a championship. What are you doing, Dallas? Especially in the NFC East. Um, we The NFC East is... Every single year, a crapshoot. We always see worse, you know, a team finish fourth, and the next year they, they pop up and with a wild card berth or even win the division. You know, the NFC, the NFC East is one of the most highly variable divisions in the entire NFL. Um, and their window, Dallas's window, especially now with the Eagles, um, you know, kind of going all in around Carson Wentz on his rookie deal, even in the first round, it's, it's just... It's just been bizarre. It's been very. It's been a very bizarre offseason for Dallas. Jerry Jones may never hit on another young quarterback in his lifetime. He's supposed to be the great oil man gambler. And all we're seeing from the oil man gambler is inaction. He's just checking to the river every time on every player that comes available again. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and I feel bad for... Tampa management because they thought they had hit on a young quarterback and it's looking more and more like Jameis Winston is not the answer in Tampa that he is a man child in Tampa I feel like it's like big this is a juvenile who's trapped in an adult's body I think that's what's happening with Jameis Winston and I don't see that guy ever leading an NFL franchise of men 
to a place where they can win a championship. So I fear the Jameis Winston years in Tampa are going to be lost years. It certainly looks like it right now. I mean, the NFC South, again, the NFC as a whole this year, uh, Matt, is just highly competitive, especially the South divisions where the Falcons and the Saints are the heavyweights. The Panthers will be in contention for a wild card berth. It certainly seems like it. Uh, Winston's off-field issues aside, he did kind of have this quiet, nice third year. Um, Last year in 11 full starts, Winston was actually the fantasy fantasy, um, QB8 in terms of fantasy points per game. He was second uh, only to Drew Brees in yards per pass attempt. So, I mean, he did have a very nice little 2017 season that was obviously mired by injury, um, leaving a few games early, and now this whole offseason debacle and being suspended uh, for groping an Uber driver for three games. So, all that being said, I, I'm with you on, on Winston. I, I it certainly seems like the Bucks um, may have mangled the, the decision to take uh, Winston over Mariota. That being said, though, I mean, this Bucks offense is just going to be fun. I, I really hope it's a fun offense when Winston uh, hopefully gets his head screwed on straight, which doesn't seem likely at this point. But come week four, I, I really like how this entire offense is set up and. They just have so many great pieces right now, Matt. Oh, for fantasy football, it's very exciting because Jameis Winston throws five deep passes per game. That's the key to Jameis Winston being a top 10 fantasy quarterback. The deep ball attempts, the deep ball volume. That's why his 5.1 air yards per attempt was number two in the NFL last year. So Jameis Winston is the quintessential NFL gunslinger and prolific fantasy producer. The problem is, on those deep balls, his completion percentage was only 26.6%. That's 32nd in the league. And his 45 danger plays on playerprofiler.com was number two in the NFL. So in real football, Jameis Winston is not the answer. But in fantasy football, he can be the engine for an offense to support multiple fantasy-relevant wide receivers, including Chris Godwin. What if I told you, Graham, that Chris Godwin is a better player than Mike Evans? The Bucks obviously disagree. They just made Mike Evans last year one of the most highest-paid uh, receivers uh, in the league. So the Bucks, the Big mistake. The Bucks dis- disagree with you. Godwin is – I mean, he was – an unbelievable athlete coming out. Um, I know Matt Harmon uh, does the reception perception metrics and, and Godwin's reception perception metrics, getting open versus man and zone coverage at Penn State were fantastic too. I, I, I get it. I mean, Godwin definitely has the upside. We talked about players like Corey Coleman checking all the boxes. Well, at Penn State, 35% dominator rating, 67th percentile. And then he was in the upper percentile across all metrics in the workouts from speed score to burst to agility. This guy's a monster athlete who produced at an early age with a 19.5 breakout age at Penn State. So the metrics indicate Chris Godwin is a complete receiver. And the on-field observations by a Matt Harmon with reception perception support that. In terms of his overall profile, I would agree. He has the makings to, to be a, a, you know, a stud fantasy receiver, a stud wide receiver, too, every single year in fantasy. But Get ready for it. Get ready for it. We want that to be in his range of outcomes. But, I mean, we just have to kind of look at what the Bucks are right now, right? So the Bucks are, are a base 11 personnel team. So they in base, they're on their pass plays, they're running three receivers, one tight end, and one running back. Last year, the Bucks uh, ran 11 personnel on 74% of their pass plays. That's well above league average of 70%. 
And even even so, Godwin only saw 7% of Tampa Bay's targets when Jameis Winston, Deshaun Jackson, and Mike Evans were all on the field last year. The biggest concern for me will, is, number one, where does Godwin play? Do they just kind of kick out Adam Humphreys out of the slot? And number two, where does Godwin's target share come from to make him fantasy relevant? And unfortunately for me, as much as I do love Godwin's profile, and I completely agree with you that he has the makings of a, of a fantastic fantasy receiver, I just I, I don't see it in his range of outcomes this year just because the opportunity isn't there, and I don't trust the Bucks to make the right decision and make Godwin kind of their full-time move receiver who can play out of the slot and beat slower nickel cornerbacks and beat linebackers in zone and move Godwin on the outside and, and let him kind of torch – uh, corners vertically. They should do those things, but I just don't trust them to make the right call. And I don't trust them to, to take Adam Humphreys off the field in, uh, in 11 personnel. When I'm deciding between upside receivers, once a fantasy draft reaches the double digit rounds, I often have a decision between Chris Godwin and Kenny Galladay. And I'm drafting Kenny Galladay every time. I think Chris Godwin's ceiling is higher if Mike Evans ruptures his Achilles. So if Mike Evans ruptures his Achilles, Chris Godwin is the free square wide receiver of my lifetime, Graham. It's why you need to have Chris Godwin on your taxi squad in Dynasty Leagues. That's why. But if the wide receiver core is healthy and Chris Godwin's competing for targets, not only with Deshaun Jackson and Mike Evans and Adam Humphreys, but also OJ Howard and Charles Sims, this is not a consolidated target distribution. This is very much a wide open and diluted target distribution in Tampa. And so for that reason, in an as-is scenario, I'm not drafting Chris Godwin in seasonal leagues. That's not going to happen. I prefer Kenny Galladay. But from a football standpoint, I'm intrigued by how Tampa will choose to use Godwin if all these receivers are healthy. If it were me, I would have Chris Godwin play slot. I think this is a successful transition for a young receiver to start his career in the slot and then move outside where the routes become more complicated and nuanced. But I'm hearing via Roto World that Deshaun Jackson has been taking significant snaps in the slot in training camp and that Chris Godwin is playing more outside. Does that make sense to you? I think they could rotate both of them and let... I have a theory that in the, in the NFL, you should let your most explosive, your most explosive in terms of straight line speed, uh, let them run out of the slot. And the Colts have actually done a really good job of this with T.Y. Hilton. T.Y. Hilton is a fantastic vertical receiver. We all know his deep speed. But what people don't really know is the Colts do an excellent job at deploying him. Even last year, I mean, T.Y. Hilton was running over a third of his routes from the slot last year. So I think getting moving Jackson and Godwin around on the outside and the interior makes all the sense in the world. But again, like I just don't trust the Bucks to make the right call. I mean, Adam Humphreys last year, Matt, played on 63% of the Bucks' total plays. It's just un- that's it's unbelievable. unbelievable. This is unbelievable. This is the Jeremy Curley, Rashard Higgins effect all over again. This is why we can't draft Chris Godwin. This is why. This is why. I don't want to hear the name Adam Humphreys. No. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. What does it do for me? It does nothing for me. You can't draft him in fantasy football. He has no ceiling. If Adam Humphreys were in a house, he would get wet every time it rains because he has no ceiling. You get it? You get it? He has no ceiling when the rain comes down? That was good. That was good. It was quite good. Um, no, I mean, like, <laughs> you're right. I mean, t- to that point, we didn't even bring up Cam Brate here. I mean, Cam Brate oh, saw Jesus nine. Jesus Christ! Yeah, we saw, I mean, Cam no! Brate saw nine targets inside of the 10-yard line last year to O.J. Howard's no! two, and he just got... 
18 million dollars in guaranteed money i love this receiving core and i hate it i know it's just it's just the bucks giving all that guaranteed money to Bray and not letting oj howard be the alpha and then now i can't trust the bucks to make the right call and take adam humphreys off the field and 11 personnel it's just they have the pieces there it's just i don't trust the bucks to make the right decision and and, and play godwin full time and um it's just unfortunate, but in a best ball league, I'm seeing Chris Godwin being drafted before Deshaun Jackson. And that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make any sense. I'm drafting Deshaun Jackson before Chris Godwin in every single best ball draft. Deshaun Jackson, it's like you built a best ball receiver in a lab. He's going to start. The idea that Chris Godwin stole Deshaun Jackson's job at the beginning of training camp is flat wrong. You need to be discerning about the beat reports that you take action on. Come on, people. You're smarter than that. You know that's not going to happen in year two of the Chris Godwin program. The year to own Chris Godwin in seasonal leagues is going to be 2019. But the year to own Cameron Meredith could be 2018 because Brandon Coleman was just released. Does that forebode a big season for Meredith? Excellent transition, Matt. You're, uh, by the way, your transitions and your transition game, I, I just I have to admire. Yes, the segues. Yeah, well, I've, I've, I, I teach a class. <laughs> I was just about to say. It's a master's class. I teach a master's class on segues. It's very popular. There's three or four people attend every month. <laughs> My master's class on podcast segueing. I'll, I'll make it five. Master's class. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if it forebodes a big season, but it definitely forebodes a big role um, in terms of his usage and just kind of makes it easier and, and easier to understand how Meredith will get on the field, right? Right. Brandon Coleman last year was the Saints' primary slot receiver. Willie Sneed had his uh, field issues, his injury issues, just kind of a lost year for Sneed. So Brandon Coleman was actually – the Saints' primary slot guy last year. He led the team in slot routes per game and slot snap rate at 65%. So getting Coleman out of the picture completely kind of does open up that interior role for Meredith. And we've seen Meredith in the, in, um, perform well out of the slot in Chicago. In his last full year in 2016, Meredith was actually the 11th most efficient receiver on a per-route basis out of the slot in terms of fantasy points per, uh, per-route run. Mm-hmm. We know the Saints every single year and Drew Brees are like, I mean, it's just it's you just lock in Drew Brees supporting two top 36 receivers. I mean, actually, Drew Brees has uh, supported two top 36 receivers uh, nine times in the last 10 years, nine times in the last 10 years. He's had two wow. top, top 36 receivers. Wait, rewind. Say that again. So over the last 10 years, Drew Brees has supported two top 36 receivers nine times. And he did it again last year with Ted Ginn and Michael uh, Michael Thomas, obviously. Ginn is obviously still going to be around as their kind of field stretcher. He's still got great uh, game speed. So he's still in the league, huh, Ted Ginn? Yeah, he's still there. He and Mike Wallace, they're competing for the best old field stretcher in the NFL, that award. Breeze is just incredible, man. I mean, like, Ginn posted a 76% catch rate. Ted freaking Ginn, a 76% catch rate last year. I mean, his career average was 52%. That has a lot to do with Drew Brees. <laughs> it does! <laughs> he is so, so good and still underrated. With that being said, though, I mean, Cam Meredith is free. He's a 12th, 13th round pick. I do see him routinely go ahead of Ginn. I don't think the ADP gap should be that big. I think Gen should be a 12th, 13th round pick along with Cam Meredith. So I'm still targeting Gen pretty heavily in best ball leagues just because he kind of fits that 
Deshaun Jackson, Mike Wallace uh, role where we're going to have you know, three, four blow up weeks and then a lot of four or five uh, PPR points per game. But I think Meredith has the, the higher in, in terms of range of outcomes. I think Meredith has the better shot at being a weekly fantasy starter, a weekly fantasy wide receiver three than Ted Ginn this year. Do you know who I'm targeting in this New Orleans offense? Is it going to be Traquan? Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas, people! What does this all really portend? Targets for Michael Thomas. The law of the conservation of targets says that when a receiver leaves a passing game, all the receivers will command more targets, including the alpha. And the alpha and the... um undisputed alpha in the New Orleans Saints passing game is Michael Thomas. Who doesn't want an undisputed alpha tethered to Drew Brees? What am I missing? You saw me draft Michael Thomas at the 203 in this Apex Fantasy Football League, and I was happy to have him there. That's right where I want to get him. Thomas, to me, in my tiers, I I put together a tiers column on fantasyguru.com. And Matt, you'll be very happy to know Michael Thomas is at the lower end of the same tier as DeAndre Hopkins, Julio Jones, and Odell Beckham for me. I don't see a big difference. Someone explain the big difference to me. Last year, he saw 28% of Saints targets and 42% of their air yards. It's, it's, it, in terms of opportunity, the only, one that's, the only player that's truly going to contest him this year is Alvin Kamara. Um, Thomas's red zone role really increased last year after his, uh, after his rookie season two. He saw 27% of the Saints inside 10 targets. I mean, he has the opportunity to finish as the receiver two behind the receiver two behind Antonio Brown. That is within his range of outcomes this year, especially if the Saints game scripts kind of recoil a little bit. Um, Last year, the the Saints were 59 percent pass heavy in neutral situations. A neutral situation is uh, within uh, the scoreboard is within seven points on either side. So the Saints were just 59 percent pass heavy in those situations last year. That was way, way down from 63 percent in neutral situations the year prior in 2016, which actually led the league. Um, So if that recoils a little bit and the Saints do go a little more pass heavy in neutral situations this year and they don't uh, and they trail just a little bit more, Thomas is just he's going to explode. I mean, he's going to absolutely explode this year. We have him projected for 90 receptions and our projections on our draft kit, fantasy-draftkit.com are not aggressive projections. These are conservative projections. But given Drew Brees' accuracy and Michael Thomas's strength at the catch point combined with his opportunity share in that offense, 90 receptions is just what you should expect. <laughs> that's it. That's what you should expect. If anything, that's conservative. On the other end of the spectrum, we have players that are holding on at the fringe of NFL rosters, but they're still regarded as explosive playmakers. I'm talking about Quarterell Patterson. I'm talking about Tavon Austin. Both seem to have renewed opportunity this season in these ambiguous receiving course. So who's more likely to be a thing? Is it Patterson in New England where the targets are up for grabs? Or is it Tavon Austin in Dallas where they seem to be intent on scheming him targets, which has been the plan for Tavon Austin throughout his career in the NFL and has never worked? Austin is a uh, he's a better he's a better running back than his receiver. He's actually averaged. This is a hilarious stat, but Austin has averaged more yards rushing per carry than he's averaged uh, in terms of yards per target as a receiver. What? Yeah, isn't that crazy? What? Tavon Austin has averaged more yards per carry as a running back than he's averaged yards per target as a receiver over the last two years. 
He's just not a good player. He's not a good player. That doesn't even sound possible. I don't even understand how that's possible. It's possible if you're Tavon Austin. And, and to that point, we just saw Sammy Watkins not even really have that big of a role, but he still scored seven, eight touchdowns last year. Mm. If Tavon Austin can't be even like one or two week fantasy viable with Sean McVay and the Rams, what makes us confident he's going to be anything in Dallas? I guess my point, though, you're going from Sean McVay to Jason Garrett. How's that going to work out? Jason Garrett is notorious for not being able to game plan in the second half or make adjustments when needed or get off their game script where they hammer the ball. So neither of these guys are particularly interesting to me. I mean, I think Patterson will make the roster as a kick returner, putt returner for, for the Patriots because he can play on special teams. And I know Tavon Austin's going to make the roster just because the Cowboys depth chart is destitute. But yeah, they have an a, irrational infatuation with that player for some reason. Yeah, I guess if I had to pick one, it'd be Austin just because Dallas's opportunity is just wide open. But yeah, it's it's gross. Jason Garrett's the reason Des Bryant's a free agent. That's the reason. Des Bryant would have performed better last season with any other offensive coordinator and would have a contract with an NFL team right now, not the Dallas Cowboys. But Jason Garrett's incompetence last season doomed Des Bryant who should have taken the money from Baltimore that was offered to him initially. That's the rule of NFL free agency. Take the money when it's offered, because if you decline, thinking demand will increase with time, it never does. Unless you're Darrell Rivas. That was a once-in-a-lifetime scenario. So we talk about target share being so important to projecting fantasy points. Makes sense. Give me one player, could be a running back, could be a wide receiver, whose target share at the end of the season will likely stun most fantasy gamers. I don't know if this one will really stun anybody, but I kind of think DeAndre Hopkins' ceiling, we we saw DeAndre Hopkins' ceiling last year, right, in terms of uh, opportunity load. Um, Over the last two years, DeAndre Hopkins has averaged 9.9 targets per game. That's a 27% share and 23 contests with Will Fuller on the field. And when when Will Fuller is out, that's when we get the huge DeAndre Hopkins ceiling. Um, when, when Fuller's been off the field over the last two years, Nuke has averaged nearly 36% of Texan, uh, the Texas targets, which is just... Wow, astronomical! Yeah, I mean, that's not only unsustainable over the long run, it's just that it's like literally mind-boggling. I mean, he's been basically half of the Texans' pass offense when Will Fuller does not play. It's also not optimal if you're an offensive coordinator or a quarterback. Of course not, no. That makes you extremely, extremely predictable. Um, so for me, I, I don't I don't want to say um, and, and go too, too hot here that DeAndre Hopkins is, is going to have like 25% of team targets. That's not what I'm saying. I, DeAndre Hopkins is going to be one of the most heavily targeted receivers in the NFL again. But I do think we saw his ceiling last year. Will Fuller has gone through the offseason uh, completely healthy. We've seen him um, in a small sample absolutely dominate with Deshaun Watson. Um, I think getting Will Fuller healthy and on the field, letting him stretch the field, um, it's not going to hurt DeAndre Hopkins' box scores too, too much. But I think in terms of opportunity, the days of, of Hopkins seeing like 36% of team targets and something ridiculous is, is, is sort of over. So I, I think just for me, that that's enough to, to take DeAndre Hopkins out of the conversation with Odell Beckham and Julio Jones and place him closer to Michael Thomas. Think about my draft in Apex in terms of game theory related to DeAndre Hopkins. What if 
DeAndre Hopkins was available to me, and I needed a running back in the second round. I draft DeAndre Hopkins and Dalvin Cook. Which would you prefer? That's really close on both sides, just because we just went through the whole thing with Michael Thomas. It's really close. I guess the thing that kind of evens it out for me is is Thomas and um, and Hopkins are I have them in basically the same tier. I think they're very close in terms of range of outcomes this year for all the reasons we just discussed. I think Barkley's a little bit safer of a pick than Dalvin just because Cook's obviously coming off an ACL tear. Saquon Barkley's the best running back prospect by far that we've seen um, maybe ever, um, at least dating back to like Bo Jackson. I mean, he's just a complete stud. So I, I think it's really close. But I also, if, if I were given the option, I know Sean Siegel took DeAndre Hopkins right before you. But if you were ha- if you have the options to go Hopkins, Hopkins Cooks, it seems there's a lot of ceiling there. Why is Saquon Barkley the best running back prospect in the history of modern fantasy football? You just look at it. I mean, like his his athleticism is unbelievable. Um, he ran, I mean, it, it was like what a 98th percentile weight adjusted speed score, something crazy. His spark score was fantastic. Um, his yards created metrics were off the charts. I mean, he basically broke my yards created, um, database. He's a fantastic pass protector. He, um, only allowed one pressure on 25 charted pass protection attempts at Penn state. Interesting. Fantastic. He's an unbelievable receiver who can be split out in the slot, split out wide and be comfortable out there. I mean, Barkley just really genuinely is an elite weapon. I wouldn't have taken him at number two overall if I were the Giants from a real football perspective because the Giants have a much larger long-term concern. That is Eli Manning. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Barkley is a fantastic prospect. The Giants picked him number two overall, and I think I mean, he's just he's just everything that everything that we look for in terms of prospects at the running back position, Barkley exceeds and he doesn't even check the box. He exceeds the box. Put the yards created and the pass protection off to the side. Those are very important. Just those alone would make you the best running back prospect in this draft class. Off to the side. Saquon Barkley is by far and away the most athletic running back in the history of playerprofiler.com, and I believe in the NFL because of his size. He has Jarek McKinnon's athleticism 20 pounds heavier. It's insane, man. And he caught more than 50 passes at Penn State last season. 50-plus receptions. So when you're the best of all time in a category like, oh, I don't know, athleticism, and you're catching more than 50 passes in a season out of the backfield, that's the starting point. And then we add all these other real football skills, the ability to evade tackles and generate yards, and the ability to protect the quarterback from the blitz. What's not to like? We talk about players that check every box. That's why Saquon Barkley is the best running back prospect in the history of the NFL because he not only checks every box, he's the best in every box. That was pretty good. That was good. That was a good job by me. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I was like, oh, wow. I ended it and I was like, oh, wait, I didn't fuck that up. That sounded good. <laughs> I was like, oh, that was great. <laughs> that was a win for the show. So, this isn't the first episode where we're going to compare the Kansas City wide receivers. It's an interesting dichotomy between Sammy Watkins and Tyreek Hill because really only Tyreek Hill has been productive for a full season in fantasy football. We've never seen it from Sammy Watkins. But that season that Tyreek Hill put together last season, it was incredibly impressive, but it also was the most unsustainable path 
to production. Would you agree? I don't even know if unsustainable is the right word. I mean, it was truly like exceptional. It's it's something that we've never seen before. Yeah, it's marvelous. It's something you marvel at. It was a marvelous season. But like we talked about with Alshon Jeffrey, that's not necessarily what you buy year to year. You don't buy last year's efficiency and last year's awe-inspiring splash plays. That's not how you win in fantasy football. Totally agree. Um, I mean, last year, Tyreek Hill became the only receiver, Matt, the only receiver ever to finish as a fantasy wide receiver one that's finished inside of the top 12 while seeing fewer than 20% of his team targets and fewer than 10% of his team's red zone targets in in that single season. Less than 10% of the Chiefs' red zone targets went to Tyreek Hill. That is a very low number. I'm not diminishing him. I'm not trying to disparage Tyreek Hill in any way. I'm just saying, clinically, that's a low number, Graham. It's fucking low. Yeah, it's, it's insane. I mean, like... Hill's average receiving touchdown over the last two years has, has been 41.4 yards. That's double the league average. The, the league average passing touchdown the end of the NFL is about 18 yards. Hill's is 41.4. And, and I get it. Tyreek Hill is probably already one of the best uh, uh, deep threats all time. Like he could be on that Randy Moss, Deshaun Jackson at his peak type of path. He already is that. But there were a lot of factors that that helped Tyreek Hill last year finish as a as a fantasy receiver. One, most notably, receiver scoring was down last year across the entire NFL. Um, also, Alex Smith somehow became a prolific deep ball passer. I mean, if you just look back at his prior prior four years in Kansas City, Alex Smith's quarterback rating on deep throws was seventy nine point two. That's well below NFL average. Now he became Jameis Smith. Yeah, you you have this cascade effect, Matt, where where Tyreek. Um, had unbelievable uh, deep target uh, statistics with a quarterback who historically is not a great deep ball thrower in a year where receiver scoring was down. Well, there also was a year where Alex Smith never threw a touchdown to a wide receiver in 16 games played. I know, it's just absurd. So to me, like it was just this perfect storm of every, everything. And now Tyreek Hill is being drafted right at his ceiling in the third round. And and Matt, I, I I think I've taken Hill. Can't do it. I, I've taken him maybe two or three times across like sixty over sixty best ball teams I've drafted this year, and I've regretted it both times. It's just I, I cannot take a a highly volatile player like that who had this perfect storm of everything take place last year at at, at his uh, at his ceiling, especially now that Sammy Watkins is inserted and and Patrick Mahomes is is um he's going to have some growing pains as a second year quarterback in the NFL. Yeah, I, I can't take Tyreek Hill in the third. Guess who Evan Silva just drafted at the 412 in this Apex League, in this Apex Experts League that we are participating in? I just saw it, Sammy Watkins. Sammy Watkins, because he knows. He knows. If Tyreek Hill is less fortunate this season, that means more opportunity for Sammy Watkins. Sammy Watkins is the better value. It's just true. Who has the lower floor, Tyreek Hill or Mike Evans? I think Tyreek Hill, just because Evans' yeah. target share is locked in. I mean, last year, Evans had a career low target share at uh, around 23, 25%. Um, but Tyreek Hill probably won't sniff 23 or 25% of team targets in Kansas City with with Travis Kelsey there, with Sammy Watkins added, added with Kareem Hunt seeing 8 to 10% of team targets. 
I think Evans has the higher floor. The danger with Tyreek Hill is the low opportunity share. The danger with Mike Evans is the inefficiency. Target share is scarier than inefficiency. Now, what about running backs? Who's the most overrated running back in all of fantasy football? <laughs> That's a hard question. This yeah, just year. give me one guy. Just give me a name. It's a hard question this year, but I'll, I'll kind of go off the radar and say it's Chris Carson. Um, we, we just went on this whole rant about how we can't trust Pete Carroll and what he says about injuries, and we especially can't trust Pete Carroll and what he says about how players are going to be used. I mean, just just think about this from a common sense perspective, right? They just drafted Rashad Penny in the first round to a team that needs basically everything on defense. Their defense has been gutted. They drafted a running back in the first round. Chris Carson is a former seventh round pick. It would have been a slam dunk worst pick in the draft had the Bills not drafted Josh Allen. You're not wrong, at least in the first round. You're absolutely right last year. And, and, and I think there's just kind of this narrative that's been built up that Chris Carson it was really good relative to the Seahawks running backs, and, and he just wasn't. Um, last year, Mike Davis averaged 2.8 yards after contact. Chris Carson averaged 2.6. They had the same number of missed tackles forced per carry. And Mike Davis had a better success rate on first and second down than Chris Carson last year. So the idea that Chris Carson was somehow – the Seahawks' best running back by far last year, or he's this uh, diamond in the rough talent that the Seahawks found in the seventh round that they're going to somehow shoehorn in over Rashad Penny. It just, I just don't buy it. Um, I get Pete Carroll wants his players to compete, and we've seen Pete Carroll give opportunity to players um, re- regardless of their draft capital. But I, I just, common sense to me says Chris Carson is nothing more than just, you know, a flyer pick. And he's now moving and, and skyrocketing up draft boards into the, in the ninth, 10th, 11th round. So to me, Carson just isn't the player everyone wants him to be. He's Kristen Michael. It's Kristen Michael redux in Seattle with Chris Carson. Super athletic, 127.9, 88th percentile burst score. So this guy can jump high, he can jump far. What he can't do is produce on the football field or catch passes out of the backfield. And if you can't do those things, if your dominator rating is below 20% at Oklahoma State and your college target share is below 5%, I'm not interested. You can hype the player until you pass out from lack of oxygen. Keep hyping. I don't care. But I will call an ambulance. (laughs) Now, which running back do you think will be the ultimate fantasy spoiler? That guy that's going to vulture the touchdowns, command more carries than we're expecting, yeah, and just ruin another fantasy running back in the process. Who's that guy? It's got to be Devontae Booker, right? I mean... It might. Oh, it might. Oh, it sounds like it might. I mean, Booker has really struggled to gain yards after contact. He's been one of the worst carry, uh, excuse me, one of the best running backs at forcing missed tackles per carry. He's actually 56 out of 58 backs, qualified backs, over the last two years in missed tackles forced per carry. So Devontae Booker has really struggled to. Elusiveness is not a strength. Yeah, exactly. But that being said, I mean, the Broncos, for whatever reason, have been, you know, kind of hinting that Booker is going to stay in as that 10 to 12 touch, 15 touch, maybe one week change of pace back. And Royce Freeman is not going to get the, all the receptions and red zone work that we're expecting. So I think Booker oh. is probably the best vulture bet. And I mean, he's routinely available in the 11th to 12th round and it's gross. He's also 220 pounds. So if Royce Freeman fumbles on the goal line, oh no. It's gross. I know. 
Oh, no. He could even come in goal line work. It's gross. And I actually think Denver is going to go pretty run heavy this year now that they've kind of rebuilt their defense. Last two years, Matt, the Broncos are the 12th most run heavy team when the score is neutral. Again, that's plus or minus seven points on the scoreboard. And the second most run heavy team behind only Buffalo when they're leading by three or more points. So I kind of think Denver goes run heavy. I think that Freeman will be the the lead back, as it were. But I also, for whatever reason, Denver just likes Devontae Booker. Um, (sighs) It's it's gross, I know. But if Rashad Penny has selected before I select again at 510 in this Apex Experts League, I will select Royce Freeman. I'm going to do it. But just know that somewhere on planet Earth, when that pick comes in, Graham, just imagine this person. And this person is me. Tears streaming down as I click the draft player button. Just know it. Just know that I'm going to hate it. I'm going to love it, but I'm also going to hate it. I love the player, but I'm not going to love the pick. I'm just telling you that right now. Just get ready. Get ready. Some draft picks in fantasy football are very conflicting. And that might be one of them. And I just might pivot to Lamar Miller and jump out my window and get it over with. I've got Miller way over Royce Freeman in my personal ring, so that's what I would do. I know. I know. Thank you. This is what I'm saying. It's very conflicting. In the final rounds, who's the ultimate dart throw running back in the final rounds? This year, to me, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I kind of think running back ADP is very, I don't want to say it's efficient because it's it's never truly perfectly efficient. The, the draft rounds are never perfectly efficient. But this, I know where you're going with this. This year, the zero running back candidates are slim. I mean, Kareem Hunt in May, June last year before Spencer Ware got hurt was free. Alvin Kamara was free. I mean, for most, even in casual leagues in July and August, he was still a 10th round pick. This year, I just don't see the clear cut, okay, I've got to target Kareem Hunt and Alvin Kamara in all my leagues, which I, you know, which I think any reasonable person would have done last year. And that's something that was a big part of my draft plan was, was, was taking Hunt and, and Kamara uh, prior to the Spencer Ware news and, and prior to Kamar getting the hype. That being said, there's really just not anybody this year. We had Elijah McGuire, but he got hurt. The one guy, and I don't even know if this even constitutes because he's like kind of an 11th, 12th round pick, and he's starting to get hyped now that training camp is um, is getting rolling. But I really like Naheem Hines. He's my favorite late round running back kind of dart throw. Um, 60, 62% of Hines' targets at NC State came split out wide as a receiver. I kind of think he's that Colts satellite back where Marlon Bank has uh, proven that he's just a pure boom-bust runner. Even at USF, he was a boom-bust runner. I think Hines is kind of this Colts satellite back. Colts also have a ton of opportunity available. Their number two and number three receiver roles are not very clear after T.Y. Hilton. Um, like Mac, though, I don't think Hines is best suited as a sustaining runner who gets 18 to 20 touches per game. That's just not Hines's, uh, in Hines' profile. That being said, I mean, he's cheap. Andrew Luck is finally healthy. We want pieces of, of uh, passing offenses that uh, we want cheap pieces of passing offenses that are valuable in fantasy. And Naheem Hines is a, a cheap avenue to get to the Colts uh, pass catching quarter this year. In the third round of this Apex draft, you went running back. Jarek McKinnon, great pick. He's very athletic. If you had to draft a wide receiver, though, who would it have been? Who's your ideal third round wide receiver? Yeah, I have really three this year in the third round, and it's in no particular order. Uh, T.Y. Hilton, Adam Thielen, and Larry Fitzgerald. I love Stephon Diggs, but um, his checkered injury past, his you know history with uh, um, lower extremity and, and soft tissue 
problems kind of make him more of an ideal fourth round pick. But unfortunately, he never really gets to the fourth round because everybody knows Stephon Diggs is awesome. <laughs> Come on, right? Uh, it's it's it sucks. It sucks. I know. But then he signs an eighty million dollar contract, and then it's really over. Yeah, exactly. I, I I think if I had now that we're seeing luck positive reports about luck it seems like he's put on the he's put on weight and he's back in football shape he's going to play in the preseason i i think ty hilton is starting to to skyrocket up my board i mean if you omit his rookie year matt hilton has averaged 16 ppr points per game with andrew luck in the lineup in the last two years luck played full seasons that's 2016 and 2014 hilton has averaged 5.5 catches and 90 yards per game he's a third round pick Give me T.Y. Hilton. You also got double sniped in this draft because Evan Silva drafted Larry Fitzgerald, then Mike Brody selected Adam Thielen right in front of you, Graham. I the tiger. Good. You're holding 50,000 volts, little man. Don't be afraid to ride the lightning. Yep, Thielen would have been my guy there. I, I, I mean, the thing about McKinnon this year is right now and where he's going he sometimes slits slips into that mid second round and starts going over aj green and Devonte adams that's where i can't pull the trigger i want Devonte adams and aj green alpha receivers over jarek mckinnon this is why i've said jarek mckinnon is jumping the shark this is what i'm talking about yeah yes he has i i just can't do it but i loved him following to, uh following me as uh at uh the third pick in the third round i think that's that's where I'm most comfortable with McKinnon is when he falls into that third round and I can start uh, running back heavy or maybe he's my number two back after taking Antonio Brown or whatever the case may be. Um, that being said, right now, Matt, where where are your feelings on the, the McCaffrey and McKinnon, the, the, those two Mick backs? Like what, how are you discerning the, the value between those two? Because to me, usage-wise, I think they're going to be kind of similar this year. Yeah, they're very similar players. I just can't draft them in the second round. It's nice. I would like to draft them in the second round. We have them ranked similarly, but Christian McCaffrey did it last year. There's something mm -hmm. to be said for having done it for a full season. 14.3 fantasy points per game last season. That was a low-end RB1 season in PPR leagues. This is what we're looking for. This is what we're hoping Jarek McKinnon can be. Well, Christian McCaffrey was already that last year, so I'd draft Christian McCaffrey before I would draft Jarek McKinnon. But to me, there's a tear break after Dalvin Cook. I would consider drafting Dalvin Cook in the second round, not Christian McCaffrey. He's a great pick in a draft master best ball league because he has a track record of health and stability going all the way back to his time at Stanford. And because he doesn't have to endure the pounding between the tackles, I think there's a lower risk of injury for Christian McCaffrey. And if I don't have access to the waiver wire throughout the season and I have to be locked into this player, I'm going Christian McCaffrey. I think he has more value in draft master because of that. But in a league like Apex, where we have access to the waiver wire, I don't feel myself being inspired by Christian McCaffrey in the second round. And he'll never slip to the third round, and that's fine. Jarek McKinnon did, and that's why that was a fine pick in the third round. Because Jarek McKinnon also has a high floor, given what his role and opportunity looks like in San Francisco. That's why it was a good pick. Yeah, we're, we're lockstep on, on how to value McCaffrey and McKinnon this year. I, I don't disagree with anything you said. Yeah, and T.Y. Hilton is the veteran receiver that will bounce back most vigorously this season, as well as A.J. Green, who you also mentioned. Now, looking at slot receivers, 
Who's your favorite slot receiver in the later rounds? Right now, I think it's got to be Taewon Taylor just because I want pieces of this Titans offense I think is going to explode this year. Especially if Rashard Matthews is um, still dealing with this like undisclosed injury that we don't really know is about. Rut row, rut row. Who is the fourth receiver in Tennessee? It's Taewon regardless right now. Well, the fourth receiver is someone like Tajay Sharp. It's a significant decline to the number four receiver in Tennessee. That's the point. It's Taewon Taylor time, baby. That was an alliteration. <laughs> I'm in on it. What about quarterback? What's the earliest you would draft a quarterback in this Apex League? I know Denny Carter every year like just doesn't even draft a quarterback, which is hilarious to me. I, look, in these expert leagues, I, quarterbacks every single time become values in like the 8th, ninth, 10th round, and Russell Wilson will fall in here, and I'll probably... I'm probably going to be targeting somebody like Russell Wilson um, if they fall. But in just my normal best ball season long leagues, this is the the best and deepest year for quarterback ever. Um, I, I've been doing um, I've been in fantasy full time now. This is my fourth season. I've been analyzing this stuff for six, seven years now. And this is easily, easily not even close to the best year for quarterbacks. I mean, Andy Dalton, Blake Bortles are low end, you know, QB twos every single week and they're free. Um, it's just it's just depth wise it's unbelievable i mean matt matt ryan is going in the third 14th round uh, excuse me 13th and 14th round eli manning is free with the best supporting cast of his career it's never the year to go with a quarterback early never like i don't care that's you you just don't draft quarterbacks in the fourth or fifth round of your fantasy drafts you just don't do it um it's especially true this year there's just so many options to 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 like so many qb2s so many low-end quarterback ones like patrick mahomes that have huge ceilings but low floors alex smith has a low ceiling but extremely high floor there's just so many different flavors that you have to like with quarterback this year and, and to me unless you draft deshaun watson or aaron Rodgers in the fourth or fifth round there's pretty much no wrong way to approach quarterback this year that's what makes this season so exciting that's why I can't wait for it to start. We're a month away from the season starting. I just can't wait for this to get going. I want to start this engine. I want to see what these offenses look like with these quarterbacks. Healthy. A healthy Deshaun Watson. A healthy Carson Wentz. Andy Dalton. Blake Bortles. Eli Manning. So many quarterbacks with opportunities to bounce back. It's a very exciting season. You talked about the last four years as a full-time fantasy analyst. In the last year, give us one lesson that you learned that made you a better analyst. The whole Todd Gurley situation really, uh, that, that was humbling last year. I, I What happened? So look, I mean, Gurley was a third-round pick, uh, late second, early third-round pick last year. And, and, you know, we all kind of expected Jeff Fisher, uh, Jeff Fisher's departure to really help Gurley. We didn't really know Sean McVay was going to be this genius coach and just explode in year one. But I mean, I went back and looked like Gurley led the NFL uh, under even under Jeff Fisher in 2016. Prior to his breakout year last year, he led the NFL in total snaps, uh, snap share and team share of running back carries. And he was available in the second late second, early third round. And I passed him up routinely. Um, we want running backs, regardless of the offense that they're on, we want running backs that are going to be on the field on all three downs, playing over 80% of team snaps, seeing over 65% of team carries. And Gurley was that guy. And I screwed up. Um, so learning from 
uh, just taking the running back with an extremely high floor, regardless, just because he's going to be on the field. That that was my big takeaway from last year is we we should always prioritize volume over everything. And this is why you and I will be targeting Lamar Miller soon in this Apex League. Yep, exactly. I mean, Lamar Miller over the last uh, two years in Houston is seventh among all running back and snaps per game. And he's seventh among all running backs and in, in uh, touches per game. And he goes in the fourth and fifth round. My, my point is, is just don't let your bias uh, of the past year or the past coaching staff or the player's past history cloud your judgment in buying opportunity, especially at the running back position. Todd Gurley was a prime example of it last year, and it obviously worked out beyond everybody's wildest expectations. I mean, Gurley had one of the best, one of the 15 best running back seasons ever. Incredible. I- incredible season. But yeah, I mean, mind boggling. That's the big thing for me is, is, is just buy, buy opportunity at the running back position, if nothing else. I thought you were going to say that the number one lesson you learned was never criticize the pod father, right? Oh, man. Right? I'm glad we're bringing this up. So to clear the air, Matt and I go way back. I mean, I think we probably started coming up and following each other. Same time. I should have, I should have handled the whole yards created situation better and been more of a gentleman about it and, and asked uh, privately. Um, so I, I, I should not have outed you. And I do apologize for that because it's totally unlike me. And, and you and I go back many, many years. And uh, we both should have handled that situation better. Yeah. What I suspect happened is that you had done all this work, hours and hours and hours, because that's the thing that people don't understand is how much time we invest in the tedium, in the little things, managing all this data on playerprofiler.com, creating these metrics on fantasyguru.com. That takes many hours behind the scenes that people don't get to appreciate because they're not on podcasts. It's tedious, high attention to detail work that forms the underpinnings of this final product that you get to see and enjoy. But there are many hours behind the scenes that need to be invested to get to that end result. And so when you see this end result pop up in yards created on playerprofiler.com, I'm assuming that you assumed that it was simply scraped from fantasyguru.com. And that would have enraged me as well. You could not have known that we had a team charting yards blocked independently. That's my assumption. That's why I was not upset at you. I was more upset at those who piled on because it's just so convenient to pile on. Yeah, and that that's the mistake that I made is I shouldn't have made it public and I should have just, you know, texted you or DM'd you. That's that's the big takeaway for me. But the big thing, Matt, is is Todd Gurley lost me money last year. And I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, in the Apex League that we're in, J.J. Zacharyson drafted Todd Gurley. I had Alvin Kamara. I had a super team with Carson Wentz, Kamara, early round receivers. I was poised and ready to go. And then here comes J.J. with Todd Gurley and blows me out of the water. I had so many teams last year that had Hunt, Kamara. Um, Oof. And they just got they got railroaded by Gurley in the playoffs. Yeah. Bye. See you later. It's funny. The one player you needed to go up against Gurley last season at the end was Dion Lewis. I know. He was the one with the weaponry and the weekly fantasy point output that you could go to battle against Gurley and survive it. Now, I'll get you out of here on this. I need one very, 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 and I'm talking very, and just when you think you haven't gone very enough, I need more very. Very, very bold prediction for 2018. I'll stick to Brandon. I'm going to say Nelson Aguilar outscores Alshon Jeffrey in PPR this year. God, fuck you!
I'll stick to Brandon. I'm going to say Nelson Aguilar outscores Alshon Jeffrey in PPR this year. Oh, fuck you! <laughs> I, I got to battle with you on this. I'm going down with my sword. I'm going down fighting. Um, I, I mean, Jeffrey and Aguilar, like I said, in terms of red zone usage last year, were very similar. I think Aguilar has a chance to catch more passes, just raw passes, um, than than Jeffrey. Just as a result of his role, Jeffrey's uh, average depth of target and his his the way he's used is completely different than Aguilar. Um, I, I think Jeffrey might already be sort of near the tail end of his career. I mean, he's coming off a of- Jesus Christ! You're really killing me here. What are you doing here? I mean, I'm underwater. I'm expecting a rope to come down so I could get to the surface, and, and I'm getting a lead weight. I mean, he's coming off a torn a, a torn uh, rotator cuff too that caused him to miss a little time. Oh, get! I just get out of here. Enough! Get out of here! I can't take this anymore. <laughs> I can't go back in time. I can't go back in time, Graham. I can't change the pick. It's been done. I can't go back and take Chris Hogan. But neither can you. Mike Brody, of course, the guy that owns the league, has Chris Hogan. That makes perfect sense. That's why Saquon Barkley is the best running back prospect in the history of the NFL because he not only checks every box, he's the best in every box. That was pretty good. That was good. <laughs> right? I was like, oh, well. I, I ended it, and I was like, oh, wait. I didn't fuck that up. That sounded good. <laughs> I was like, oh, that was great. <laughs> that was a win for the show. Take your shot at winning a championship. What are you doing, Dallas? He's just checking to the river every time on every player that comes available again. What the fuck are you doing? This is why we can't draft Chris Godwin. This is why. This is why. I don't want to hear the name Adam Humphreys. No. I don't want to hear it. What does it do for me? It does nothing for me. You can't draft him in fantasy football. He has no ceiling. If Adam Humphreys were in a house, he would get wet every time it rains because he has no ceiling. You get it? You get it? He has no ceiling when the rain comes down? That was good. That was good. It was quite good. I love this receiving core and I hate it. To that point, we didn't even bring up Cam Brate here. I mean, oh Jesus Christ! Especially January. January is pretty boring. In some ways, I like you know those times better because I'm actually able to think and do some things that are more creative. And then people are like, oh yeah, well you know maybe in September. I'm like, you can't talk to me in August and September. Like, we're not gonna get anything done. What are you kidding me? I don't think what people understand is there's so much planning. And, and content plan and for, for both of us subscription packages to sell. I mean, there's a lot of shit that goes into this. Um, I don't think people truly understand. <laughs> like June, July, August, you're just... Projections and rankings, 17 weeks. And then people want the season ranks updated for, you gotta do waiver wire. Those are the biggest pains in the asses, the season ranks. Like there's just so many of these things. Then, oh, oh, wait, where, where's, the, where's the show? Where's the podcast? Whoa, 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 whoa! And then they think, they think with all that, that they could just go to Twitter and ask you a question and you're going to respond if they should start, right? Alan Robinson or Sammy Watkins this week? I've stopped answering questions. I just don't, I don't have the time. I don't see the value in it. I genuinely don't. Like, there's no value in it. No, there is no value. 
Five years ago, everyone used to answer every question on Twitter because it was a novelty. Now, slowly, the collective consciousness of the community is realizing there's no value to answering these entitled fox. Just let them subscribe. You have to create sub-communities. So I created a sub-community of show listeners who pay 6 to $8 a month. Yeah. That creates like a funnel down so that instead of me dealing with a pool of 20,000 people, I'm dealing with a pool of 800 people. That actually are paying and, and subscribing and... Yeah, and that care, and there's no noise, there's no trolls, there's just genuine curiosity, and then you can actually be a lot more laser-focused and efficient answering those questions than, like, the one-off, you know, when you're in line at the movie theater. Yeah, I know. Fuck that. I, I, I just stop, man. I just don't, I don't have the time or I don't have the energy. I just... Like, if it's a subscriber question, like, about the site or something that I wrote, I'd never mind answering that stuff. But it's a, that's what matters, though. It's like Yeah, that's what matters. Those are people that actually care. Once I understood the psychology of just the drive-by question grenade thrower... That's a great way to put it. Once I understood, like, the profile... Look at this. Who is this person? You know, what, what, what is their modus operandi? It's like, oh, well, yeah, okay, so... You don't need to worry about being rude to that guy. He doesn't have much value. Is You can take that guy and create content with him if you don't mind, like, embarrassing him and alienating him. <laughs> and I don't. So I'm like, you're going to be a content creator because I had a guy yesterday. I didn't. I felt a little bit bad because he's, like, clearly, like, new to social media, new to Twitter, new to the show. And he was, like, you know, had all this you know, information for me about, you know, Jordan Howard's, you know, work after practice on improving his hands. And he wanted to know how much that would change my projection for him. I just said, you need to listen more and tweet less. <laughs> and he didn't know. He didn't know what he was walking into. He didn't know this was like the Don Rickles Twitter account for fantasy football. He didn't know. And I was like, I was like, I kind of feel bad. But at the end of the day, man, he only tweeted that to satisfy this urge to feel smart. He wanted you to think that he's smart. A lot of these fantasy football tweets, they're very, look at me, cloaked in, oh, I'm just trying to be helpful. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're just trying to show that you know this mundane stat that most people wouldn't know, but you follow the team so closely and you want to get credit from the world for your hobby of following this team more closely than a reasonable human being should be following them. And no, I'm not going to give you credit for your esoteric knowledge of this team. And I'm glad you know it. And I hope it provides you some comfort at night. <laughs> nailed it man these fucking guys man i mean god if a surgeon there's no one walking into the room and saying you know i don't know if you've seen the latest stats <laughs> on, on on the ventricular artery and then you're like, get the fuck out of here what are you doing <laughs> No, but everyone thinks that they can do fantasy football better than the next guy. 
I mean, I'm sure you've seen it too, but the industry has changed so much since we both came up in it um, kind of around the same time. But it's changed so much. I mean, there's just so many people trying to break in and you're right. I mean, it's just, there's a lot more that goes into it. I remember when I first started, the marker in the sand for me was when ESPN started this program called Fantasy Island. Almost like it was like a survivor and you had to write an article every week and it would get judged. It was like The Apprentice, but for fantasy football. And then every week they had all the contestants write an article. And then they would down-select every week. And Survivor Style, whichever writer made it to the end, would become an ESPN fantasy football writer. Grantland wanted to create a role, a fantasy writer role, and they were going to source that position with a Survivor Style contest on the site. And the fantasy douche was in it. He was one of the contestants. And I didn't even make it into that. I didn't even make the first cut. I didn't even make the contest. At least Fantasy Douche made the contest. I don't think he won it, but he made the contest. And I didn't make the contest. Mine was about how uh, Tony Gonzalez is underrated and he should be a first round pick. Oh, boy. Yeah, because of position scarcity at the tight end position. Um, so, yeah. I think I had just won a league in fantasy baseball with a catcher. And I was like, well, tight ends like catcher. You know, it was, just, it was crazy, you know. And uh, at that same time, Matthew Barry was writing an article about how he thought Michael Vick should be the first overall pick. My first articles were garbage, too. I bet I could find them. I don't want to find them, but I bet I could. <laughs> time yeah then i wrote an article about who the dreamiest wide receivers were so the top 50 wide receivers just based on you know who was the handsomest it was for rant sports <laughs> eric decker one two and three i was early on uh, deandre hopkins being handsome <laughs> i thought deandre hopkins was super dreamy before he broke out in fantasy football he broke out in my fantasies and then oh, randall cobb with the eyes. Oh my God, Randall Cobb was, I was transfixed. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, Eric Decker is almost kind of like the cliche guy. He is, but I mean, it's it's the truth though. They had to get Larry Fitzgerald in there just for the butt, because he has that high bubble butt. We were just doing wide receivers though. You could actually go very deep. I was shocked because I just, as a, I gravitated immediately to wide receivers. Then I went back and looked at quarterbacks, running backs, other positions. And I found out, wow, there really is this disproportionate looks advantage that the wide receiver has. Like wide receiver, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but that position is predisposed to be good looking. Manny Sanders is another one. He's, he's handsome as hell. Manny Sanders with his shirt off was in the top 10. For sure, Manny Sanders. And Antonio Brown, not Demarius Thomas. This is A-plus content right now. This is A-plus content. And also, guess who else I was early on on that? Kenny Stills. Mm. Because he had the frosted tips. Sometimes it was not a holistic score. Sometimes if you had just one attribute that was excellent, like that would be enough. <laughs> yeah, Randall Cobb's eyes, Larry Fitzgerald's butt. That's the, that's the tone setter. And Kenny Stills' hair. Those were big ones, I remember. So if you're an accountant and you say, hey, I want to write an article, I'm like, sure, we'll 
take your article and clean it up and put it on the site and get you exposure. And knowing that this is a hobby, you, you know, we're not going to pay for that. I mean, what? No, we're not going to pay money for that. You're not a writer. You're, you're just trying it out. We'll let you try it out as long as you meet all these guidelines. Yeah. Which is just basically Bleacher Report. <laughs> so I have no problem being Bleacher Report with metrics. I really don't. You know, like another cowboy, you know, when you see another cowboy you know, in the saloon, I, I look over and I'm like, oh, you're quick. You're quick with the steel, Graham. And I, I truly am going back to the whole yards credit thing. I should I should have handled that better because I have so much respect for you coming up kind of like me. I mean, we, we made these things. We, we made brands for ourselves and um, careers out of this, out of basically nothing. So I, I do apologize because, I, like I said, I have a ton of respect for everything that you do. I totally blew it not writing you up in the terms glossary, too. It's a terrible analogy on the front end. But they say that like a plane crash requires at least a string of four or five bad decisions. One negligent thing won't crash a plane. It's got to be like five things that all come together. That's what happens. Oh, you add gasoline and then, oh, shit. Now we have an explosion. Fuck. But outside of that, I mean, they're looking at Richard Higgins, you know, Jeff Janis, missed, you know, Jeff Janis, missed, you know, Jeff Janis, missed. Yeah, easy. Easy. Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas, people! What does this all really portend? Targets for Michael Thomas. Master's class. Never criticize the Podfather. And they just got, they got railroaded by Gurley in the playoffs. Bye! So there were questions, is this a new John Dorsey? But no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 It's my roster. These are my players. Ruff, 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 ruff. No change to the talent configuration of the roster is going to get them out of their game plan, Graham. It's crazy. It's crazy. Master's class. Oh, boy. A well-built, big-armed quarterback who has problems with decision-making and errant passes. <laughs> who does that sound like? I mean, I've never heard that before. Oh, oh. I, I was hoping we'd disagree on the show. I, I can't endorse the Alshon pick. But I at least want to enjoy the Alshon Jeffrey while he's 28. Because I know it's not going to last. I'm like, oh, let me get some Alshon Jeffrey before it's over. Oh, boy. I have plays and packages to install. Ruff, 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 ruff. Oh, boy. They had to get Larry Fitzgerald in there just for the butt. Yeah, he was the Braxton Berrios before Braxton Berrios. He was just traded for a conditional 2020 seventh rounder. So Austin Carr was Riley McCarron before Riley McCarron was Braxton Berrios. That's the musical chairs of the white wide receivers moving around the league. <laughs> <laughs> and big surprise, who kicks off the process? The cascade effect always starts and emanates in New England. Riley McCarron, Patriots, white wide receiver cascading waterfall. Just in case the podfather thought that being a Cleveland Browns fan would be easy. Oh, I give you hard knocks. Pete Carroll could sell like a, a broken down 1989 Toyota Camry. And, and sell it above sticker price for, for like more than $1,000. He could do it. Because I'm not a doctor, Ethan! And neither are you! It's gotta be Devontae Booker, right? I mean, it's, it's gross, I know, but... If your dominator rating is below 20% at Oklahoma State and your college target share is below 5%, 
I'm not interested. You can hype the player as uh, 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 until you're out of breath, until you until you pass out from lack of oxygen. Keep hyping. I don't care. But I will call an ambulance. Jump out my window and get it over with. It's it's gross. I know. I'm not diminishing him. I'm not trying to disparage Tyreek Hill in any way. I'm just saying, clinically, that's a low number, Graham. It's fucking low. The one that I'm crying in the shower about is Doug Baldwin. This person, and this person is me. I don't, I, I don't know, man. I got a bad feeling. It's never the year to go with a quarterback early. Never. Like, I don't care. That's You, you just don't draft quarterbacks in the fourth or fifth round of your fantasy draft. You just don't do it. Tears streaming down as I click the draft player button. Master's class.